Being the Worst, Episode 42. Recorded Thursday, January 7, 2016. From beingtheworst.com, it's the Being the Worst podcast. Audio apprenticeships for the aspiring software craftsman. With your hosts, Carrie Street and Renat Abdulid. In this episode, Carrie and Renat babble about a buffet of programming languages and some of their strengths and weaknesses. It soon becomes clear that Renat has a crush on Clojure, but still walks us through several of the programming languages he has explored the last couple of years. And now, here are Kerry and Renat. Renat? Hello? <laughs> good evening. Good morning, good evening, whatever it is. Um, so last episode, I was to go off and do some homework and get some napkins and a pen and write some ideas down and brainstorm and come back and review that with you and start building some things. But uh, since then, that's been the holidays and everything. And what I actually did do is I did write down a few ideas and a few sketches of of a couple of problems. And I talked to some of the people that I'd be working with to create those. And because it's been almost four weeks, we actually had a chance to validate a couple of those ideas and shot one of them down that we were actually spending most of our time on for now. So what we thought we would do today to give me a little bit more time to circle back on which one of those two or three ideas seemed to be most viable from a business perspective, um, we thought we'd maybe balance out the last episode where I took a pretty hard stance that says, you know, hey, I'm pretty much picking the implementation in advance because I want to do something that's fun and doesn't annoy me or whatever. But um, I also noticed, and, and you had mentioned that in the last couple of years, you've had a chance to explore several different languages given the various companies that you've been working for and self-exploration. And we thought we might counterbalance my strong bias from last episode with just a quick tour of some of the things you've learned from various languages and the pros and cons of each and just get into some of that stuff and maybe keep my mind open to trying out some of that stuff as uh, I try to solve some of these problems going forward. Okay, sounds good. And henceforth, this episode will be known as Programmer Porn, because we'll talk about the programmer languages. <laughs> Great. The topic that seems to create uh, holly wars and flame wars almost everywhere. <laughs> I'd say that's pretty much true. Language wars, I think tabs and spaces, which language is better, my language is better, and maybe editors. I guess those are probably the big three as far as uh, what programmers will uh, fight about, right? Yeah, actually, regarding the uh, tabs versus spaces, I think the language that solved this problem best of them all was Golang, because uh, they said, okay, there is only one way to format your code in Golang, and we provide a tool to do that automatically, and we expect uh, pretty much that all repositories in Golang will be in this format, and this tool automatically insert tabs. So uh, basically, it's uh, proponents of spaces, and spaces have their own, their own merits, of course. Uh, they have to accept that Golang is pretty much uh, tab-based, and that they don't have to agree, but the flame war is over here. <laughs> yes, we are very opinionated. If you want to use it, here you go, basically is their stance on that one. Mm-hmm. So, hey, that works, whatever. Um, so... Why don't you kind of recap just a high level of some of the uh, the languages that we might get into today and what you've explored personally uh, recently, and then we'll start diving into each one. 
Okay, sounds good. So basically within the uh, last few years, I've been fortunate to explore a few languages outside of the uh, .NET Microsoft ecosystem. And first of all, I have to thank uh, folks at the Hat Pancake Project, especially uh, Peter, Thomas, and Tom. And with them, the uh, first language that I discovered was Erlang. <coughs> so uh, Erlang is probably, you may have heard of it, uh, it is a language that is used in telecom systems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The language stands for uh, Ericsson language. Yes, and I think they, they became it became even more famous in the for regular people with uh, WhatsApp. I think was implemented or is implemented and got a lot of press when that was all popular. Oh yeah, and they were hosting like crazy amount of concurrent connections. Yes, even though they were down on New Year's Eve, which was really annoying. But <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, I also heard uh, a very good story about Erlang that people actually implement a lot of uh, game development, game mm-hmm. servers mm-hmm. in Erlang. And uh, what they're basically doing is that their coordination server is Erlang in some cases. However, it only accepts connections, uh, routes them to the proper actor, and then actual actor logic is in Python or something like that. Mm, I see. Okay, so uh, Erlang is basically a very nice language with, uh, which comes with its own runtime. And just like .NET, it can run on uh, multiple operating systems. Mm-hmm. A good example of Erlang is, for example, uh, RabbitMQ or uh, what's worth the React database key value storage. Okay, React. Mm-hmm. Uh, this language is uh, takes immutability, functional approach, and actors as first-class citizens. And uh, basically, it is designed to build uh, systems that have very low latency. Uh, extremely high uptime. Basically, people with Erlang were able to achieve like uh, six nines or something like that because Erlang systems never go down. Even, for example, if you have to upgrade the code, you can actually upgrade your code uh, it, performing a hot swap for the modules without shutting down the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also has OTP platform, basically, which is, I have to stop saying basically, <laughs> which is an Open Telecom platform, a bunch of libraries uh, and approaches and interfaces for building high availability and reliable servers. They have like uh, event handler, uh, what was that, uh, finite state machine there. And in essence, they say if you implement your server capability in this way, if you implement this interface, we'll take care of all the gory details like code, uh, hot codes fab, uh, error handling, etc., etc. Nice. So that's very nice. Mm-hmm. very nice. And there is also, um, since Erlang syntax can be a bit weird, there's also Elixir, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is a different language. I think I believe it's inspired by Ruby, which also runs on Erlang. Mm-hmm. And it's just a different flavor, although there are always uh, holy uh, words around there. Yes. Like Elixir is better, Erlang is better. Mm-hmm. I personally prefer pure Erlang since it uh, stays uh, closer to the original intent of the language. Although uh, Tom Johnson's, I believe, uh, he liked uh, Elixir. Yeah, so I'm hearing lots of uh, good things about Elixir. I haven't looked at it personally, but it, it, again, it's just syntactic sugar on top of Erlang and maybe some additional libraries and some web frameworks and stuff to make it a little more general purpose or whatever applicable. But um, just a quick question on the Erlang side. Because it's heavily based in, on the actor model, I, I believe, I never actually mm-hmm. used it. Um, every time I look at anything that's sort of based on the actor model or claims to have actors, 
I want to make sure that the thing in my mind that always pops in there is actually somewhat accurate based on your evaluation of it. And that is when we were doing aggregates with event sourcing, it almost seemed to me like every time I saw an actor and the way it was structured and how it was handling, you know, single threaded and concurrency problems and all that nice stuff that we were doing with aggregates to contain our state and blah, blah, blah. It seemed very, very similar. Like I almost was thinking almost one-to-one as an actor to an aggregate. And how close is it to that? I believe actors and aggregates are patterns that are aligned pretty much. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we're talking about the actors, we're basically uh, mostly discussing uh, the approach on how to structure concurrent programs Mm -hmm. where you have multiple... um, I don't know, flows of time that happen in parallel and you need to somehow synchronize this uh, parallel process to make sure that, for example, they don't mess up each other's state by mutating some variables that uh, are accessible from different threads. Yes. And with actors, you communicate a different process through message passing. Yes. So an actor has an interface, which in Erlang's case, for example, is an inbox. Mm-hmm. And if you want to change uh, the state of that actor, or if you want to get some information about that actor, you have to send a message to that. Hmm. And the entire runtime is designed in such a way that it allows you to run efficiently millions of actors or millions of processes uh, on a simple machine. I see. So it allows uh, you not to write uh, all, uh, highly concurrent programs. It also allows you to reach... Uh, very good level levels of uh, parallelism actually in practice. Hmm. Okay, uh, and aggregates are mostly uh, the idea comes from Eric Evans, mm-hmm. the main driven design approach. Right. Uh, it basically says when you're loading a piece of data, uh, usually there are some uh, parts of the data that change together, and we want to operate with them uh, transactionally. We want to load them in one go. We want to change them in one go. Who want to load them by their aggregate, their aggregate route. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, it's more about manipulating business data in a transactional way. I see. And yes, we can say that essentially, when actor deals with that data, the state of an actor, it can be aligned with aggregate state. Okay. Cool. So aggregate is uh, the stuff that can go inside of an actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, although actors are slightly a bigger pattern because we deal with concurrency and parallelism. Gotcha. Right, which which aggregates don't really get, aren't, don't concern themselves with really necessarily. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so uh, Erlang was so good that multiple languages tried to adopt the actor. Uh, actually, uh, sorry, Erlang was very good at showcasing and implementing the actor model so that a lot of languages in the other platforms uh, decided to try to implement their own flavors. Mm-hmm. So in Java world, for example, there is Akka. Mm-hmm. Uh, in C-sharp world, uh, there was Akka.net and also, I believe, Orleans in some in certain way. Yes. Although there is one caveat. In Erlang, actors are first-class citizens, so they are baked, their support is baked in right into the syntax and into the runtime. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing is that they were, since the language was designed for this purpose mostly, so uh, that's where most heavy usage lies, and it was battle tested for this purpose. Cool. And as such, they're actually dealing with problems like how to scale a system to, for example, instead of 10,000 uh, 10, nodes to 100,000 nodes, because clusters can get very unstable at that uh, scale. Mm-hmm. 
And so it is a popular saying that all the other languages that implement actor model, they actually are partial and have a broken implementation of Erlang, which <laughs> is partially true because uh, for all the other platforms, actor model is usually not first-class citizen. I see. It was added after because it was so popular. Mm -hmm. But these languages are like not using it uh, for the most of it. For example, in Scala mm -hmm. uh, and Java world, Akka is very widely used, sorry, is widely used, mm -hmm. but it's not, like, it wasn't baked into the language from the start. True. And less so even .NET. Gotcha. Now, we, we've got, like, five or six languages to, to, to review that you've had experience with. When we go through each one, do you want to maybe just show me a couple of the links and maybe what the syntax looks like, and then I'll post those in the show notes? Okay, sounds good. Cool. So what is, uh, show me some Erlang. Okay, so actually I have a blog post uh, on my blog, which is uh, covers Erlang Basics. Cool. I've been doing that while reading, I think it was Erlang for the, oh, Learn Me Some Erlang book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And apparently the best way to actually learn something is to take notes, and uh, this blog post is a example of that. Cool. Yeah. Why don't you just send me a link to that? And uh, I don't even need to screenshot that. That's a nice little write-up of, of everything there. And I thought you actually did that with a couple other languages too, but cool. Yep. All right. So we'll have a link to that uh, blog post or not, a whole Erlang basics. And you can see the syntax on there and uh, his notes as he's going through it. Cool. Uh, and actually a side note, basically, uh, sorry, I have to start, uh, stop saying basically, or I'll end up writing in basic. <laughs> uh, this blog post... Which is not one of the languages we're going to cover today, right? <laughs> absolutely not. All right. Uh, this blog post was written uh, in Emacs, in org mode, which is a very easy way, for example, to mix language and uh, text, where language can actually be evaluated. And Emacs is basically... Emacs is essentially a Lisp interpreter. And Lisp is a language I hope we'll definitely cover today. Okay. Okay, so after uh, discovering Erlang, we tried uh, two other languages at Happy Pancake Project. Uh, one of them was Haskell. Okay. And Haskell is a very nice, uh, very interesting language. I strongly recommend anybody who is like trying to expand their horizon uh, to try Haskell as well. Now, I thought that was the one I remember you tweeting about, about uh, you thought you were writing code poems or something, right? Was that the one? Yes, that is the one. Now, why Basically. were you all excited about that? Why was it so poetic to your brain? Uh, first of all, uh, Haskell has a nice particular feature. Uh, if you make your code compile, then it will probably work. <laughs> However, getting the code to compile is very hard. I see. So Haskell is a very high-level language. It has a very strong typing, very strong types, and you... Uh, can not only declare types, but you can declare uh, relations between the, these types. And in addition to that very strong typing, it is a functional language. Okay. It is a functional language. I think it's, uh, it was immutable language, so you can't uh, bind to the same value, uh, value at the same time. Uh, and a very important note about Haskell is that it's research and prototype language. Mm, okay. So the language is there uh, being actively developed, there are like lots of different add-ins or modules or extensions. I don't recall the name. Mm -hmm. And it's really different. If you're in .NET world, there is an F-sharp language, mm -hmm. but, which is also strong type. 
but Haskell uh, has more depth to it. Haskell oh. is more advanced. That's why I remember that too. That's they F Sharp even says that that's the language that was highly influential in their its design, right? Yes. Well, okay. I believe uh, F Sharp, since it's like a younger language, mm-hmm. it can stand on shoulders of multiple giants, right. and Haskell is probably one of them. Okay. Now, what is? I mean, I know it was very like academic and research, and a lot of stuff goes on there, and you can try out stuff. But is it its own runtime, or is it built on the JVM, or what's the? How do you actually do something with it? Uh, actually, Haskell um, it has its own runtime, mm-hmm. so it's also cross platforms. Cross platform, you can like make it run on different operating systems. Mm-hmm. Although there is a version of uh, Haskell, I believe it's, it's called Frog or Frog or something like that, which uh, implements Haskell on JVM. Okay. Uh, so I believe the Haskell would be good for cases where you have to capture a very complicated domain logic with lots of complicated rules. Hmm. For example, maybe capturing uh, expert systems or, I don't know, some pricing rules for the real estate or some evaluation rules for real estate. Because mm-hmm. it's so expressive, like, can you, while we're talking, can you, like, show me some of the, there we go, syntax there. Okay, cool. So you found an example on uh, wiki.haskell.org. We'll put a link to that under tying the knot. And we're looking at this. Now, to my brain, because I've never seen Haskell before, it's like, what the heck is that? So help me see the poetic amazingness of this glob of syntax I don't understand, Renat. <laughs> What's going on here? What does it say? Okay, I'm not quite sure as uh, myself either. Mm-hmm. So and they're saying that they're building a circular dumbly linked list giving oh. a certain standard Haskell list as an input. And here they're essentially defining a rule, mm-hmm. which is uh, defining a data type for their circular list. And then they're d- defining a constructor. And here, uh, one of the particular features of Haskell is that it's... Uh, very rigid around types, and it also has very flexible pattern matching. So uh, if you hear people uh, say that in NFR, for example, pattern matching is very good, or inner-line pattern matching is very good, mm-hmm. Haskell has high-quality pattern matching as well. I see. And so this method, this is a type de- uh, de- declaration of the method, mm-hmm. which is usually optional, but people like to add them uh, for explicit verbosity. And this is a function which actually creates a double-linked list mm-hmm. uh, from a circular list. It, it essentially assigns the nodes to each other. Now, it looks like, because um, like, I've only messed around with F-sharp a little bit, now there's two things that stick out to me that look kind of similar. I don't know if it means the same thing, but I noticed, one, it seems like it uses uh, tabs or spaces or basically indentation to indicate you know, what, the scope of things. I believe uh, that could be the case, yeah. And do those little arrow operator-looking things, are those similar to like the Lambda kind of things in F-sharp and C-sharp? Or no? um, Don't know. Not really. I think these are uh, arguments uh, mm. in a function. Mm-hmm. So that's the first argument. That's the second argument. That's the third ar- argument. Got it. And I know you guys can't see that, but we'll have the sample on there. But to wrap up the Haskell thing, it's basically... I'll let you wrap it up, Renat. Like the, the reason we want to take a look at Haskell is... Uh, it's a language that is very different to what people are doing in C-sharp, mm-hmm. although it's uh, quite similar in spirit uh, to what people are doing in F-sharp. It's a different way to look into the problems. And there are certainly are domains where Haskell would be a very good fit. 
For example, if you have, if you need the power of types of functional programming that is above what object-oriented programming can provide you. Okay. And Haskell is very compact. I mean, it, and also I believe Haskell was uh, the entry point into functional programming for me. Oh, really? Hmm. Now, why, why were you guys even looking at Haskell when you were doing it? Because it's a very nice language that allows you to express things in a very compact way. Mm-hmm. So, and less code is uh, less possibility for bugs, mm-hmm. uh, which is a usual belief. And also, Haskell has extremely fast feedback loop because oh. you don't need for the program to run in order to catch bugs there. You express so many relations in your code that compiler can already catch them. I see. Cool. You're saying so many things that I've heard F-sharp people say that I think this is the one that's the Haskell heavily influenced F-sharp. I think they, that's the one they're talking about. It looks, yeah. it looks similar, has a lot of the properties, and I think Haskell's one of the languages they hold up is like, we love it, it's amazing, yes, or whatever. So anyway. <laughs> so uh, both F-sharp and Haskell are very good. I, ha- uh-huh. I strongly recommend uh, learning them. They yeah. certainly have, have their applications. Mm-hmm. Although, and actually I believe uh, F-sharp is quite used in analytics and trading, mm-hmm. and Haskell could probably, is probably applied in these areas as well. Cool. Okay, uh, then uh, one more language that had a very strong influence on me, mm-hmm. and I'll hold this language uh, near and dear to my heart, was <laughs> Golang. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is pretty new language, uh, mainly sponsored by, by Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, is, it has very simple syntax, it is essentially a replacement for C or C++ without their complexity, but with their ability to write uh, fast and relatively fast and lean code. And so it has multiple features. First, it's very simple. They have only, I believe, 20 keywords on that, syntax keywords there. Hmm. They don't have generics. They have classes, but they don't have generics, hmm. which is, uh, might be odd for some people especially used to the latest Java or the latest C-sharp. Mm-hmm. However, uh, Golang has first-class support for concurrency primitives like goroutines and channels. What are those? And these are ba- basically, these are quite similar to Erlang. You can have millions of goroutines uh, running in your process, mm-hmm. and the runtime scheduler will make sure that each of them gets their own slice. I see. Uh, in Golang, you don't write async code. So all, for example, uh, I.O. operations are blocking. However, the runtime scheduler will make sure that if your operation is, uh, if your code is blocking, then it will uh, wait somehow and meanwhile switch the execution to the other thread. So it's got async so and await uh, built in basically, but you don't have to care about it. It just magically works by default. Yeah. Okay. And nothing would, bad would happen, for example, if you do... Uh, a sync, but forget to uh, wait for the result. Gotcha. Uh, in Golang, it's, you can't really do that. Mm-hmm. And so Golang is very nice uh, if you're trying to build uh, high-performance thin servers or command line tools. For example, Docker, the command line tool that which runs on top of Linux containers, and I believe Windows is bringing uh, this command line tool to their language on top of Hypervisor mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. Hyper-V. Uh, it's written in Golang. Yes. And the drawbacks of this language is that in some cases it might lack expressiveness. 
So you have to write sometimes uh, repetitive and boring code. Mm -hmm. Plus, it's relatively young, so it may lack drivers, stable drivers, or uh, different like clients or libraries. And I, I thought you had a, several posts on your blog with sample code and everything, didn't you? Or maybe it was a happy pancake recap or something. But I thought I remembered reading some pretty cool Go stuff on your blog. Well, I have actually a repository with a few building projects uh, at GitHub. Mm-hmm. And one of them is Omni. It's actually a backend, well, the process that we started, that mm-hmm. implements getting things done server in Golang. Oh, cool. Send me a link to that and I'll put that in the notes. I remember, now I remember that. Yep. So these, yep. there they are, .go. Now, uh, I th- wasn't the other, one of the cool things about Go is when you're done, it, like, it compiles to like a platform specific EXE, right? It's just done. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Cool, cool. That syntax that you're showing me there, you're looking at denormalizer in your Omni project or demonormalizer.go. I don't know. That just looks so much cleaner and easier to read than the other stuff we looked at so far. But it's yes. just, obviously, it's it's got to benefit from modern, you know, it's brand new language, so it's nice and clean. But It's inspired by C. Mm-hmm. And for a C-sharp developer, that was a very easy transition. Yeah, I believe like in a week or so, we were happily working on Golang code already. Yeah, I could see what you're saying here with so few keywords and C-inspired stuff. Like, this is the first one we've talked about so far. When you pulled up the source code, my brain wasn't, like, eye scrambling. Like, what am I looking at just because I'm not familiar with it? But this is because of that, you know, C-sharp, JavaScript, Java kind of uh, curly braces. (laughs) My brain looks at it and says, like, oh, there's – I don't know anything about Go, but you have package at the top. I'm assuming that's importing some kind of library. or That's a namespace. Yeah, okay. Package is a namespace. You got import and you you got an import statement, which I guess is uh, pulling in some libraries you're going to use. Mm-hmm. And then you got a struct. And yeah, this seems like it would be pretty quick for a C-based language guy to uh, to pick up. I like yes. it. I like it. Yes. It's <clears throat> simple. However, I've... I, b- I believe that the sweet spots of this language are mm-hmm. like thin servers where you have to uh, achieve high concurrency mm-hmm. or even parallelism mm-hmm. uh, and cross-platform CLI tools, which might also benefit from uh, good concurrency support. But if you're writing a lot of domain logic mm-hmm. or if you're writing something where you want to catch your business intent, it can be boring. You have to write a lot of repetitive code. Gotcha. And I think that you mentioned in the past on Twitter and other conversations that it doesn't really have amazing libraries for like user interface kind of stuff, right? Like it doesn't it require you have to do some extra work just to kind of get basic web pages or UIs or GUIs to work on anything, right? Yes. Yeah. If you have to render HTML, Golang is not a good use. Gotcha. It has its own templating engine and some people were able to put it. But I'd stop, uh, I'd stop at REST JSON-based backend. And you can render the HTML and do all the nice stuff, uh, for example, in front-end, in JavaScript with React, and this kind of stuff. But it sounds like it. Would you say it's, it's pretty ideal for um, little server microservices doing simple things and receiving REST calls and doing some work and being done and stuff like that? It's pretty good, yes. Okay. Although, if you have lots of lots of these microservices, mm-hmm. then you probably have quite a decent amount of code, and writing them in GoLang may be or maybe not good, uh, like fun for you. Gotcha. Cool. Okay. Uh, the next language, quick, kind of quickly went through, 
mm-hmm. uh, was Scala. So Scala is a new language on top of uh, Java Virtual Machine. Uh, so uh, Java is a very good multi-paradigm language. It probably looks like what C-sharp will be in five years. So, All right. So Scala, you think it's C-sharp's going to look like that in five years? Why? What's so cool hipster about it? Uh, what's going on in that world? Okay. So first of all, Scala has, uh, runs on Java Virtual Machine, mm-hmm. which makes it able to run on any Linux or Windows server mm-hmm. in a production-capable runtime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a multi-paradigm language, so it supports both object-oriented programming and functional programming approaches. Okay. And it has lots of lots of syntax sugar. So, for example, you know how they added a link to C-sharp? Mm-hmm. Where we can uh, write in the code from X in where select blah, blah, blah. Yes. I believe uh, Scala guys could uh, implement that in their own language without extending the language hmm. using uh, like syntax structures that are available there. I see. And in fact, like people in Scala were building DSLs. I see. So it's very flexible. It doesn't have a lot of clutter, for example, that C Sharp has. Okay. For example, you could easily uh, define functions which don't belong to any class. You could uh, easily define classes which are data structures. You have even pattern matching in Scala. Mm-hmm. So it's very flexible. However, in the end, I personally didn't like it because it's too flexible. It's, uh, it's too flexible, and this leads to two outcomes. <laughs> First, uh, since there are so many ways to perform different tasks, and even to like build foundation for your uh, project, mm-hmm. uh, each project will look different. Yeah, especially with multiple developers. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, well, I mean, uh, and it's not a problem because different projects, different teams will basically uh, agree on what their patterns and practices are. Mm-hmm. But still, uh, this creates a lot of diversity. And diversity is pretty much a good thing, usually. Right. Uh, for example, uh, one of the things that makes Scala too complex of language for uh, somebody dumb as me is that you have methods, and you can have implicit, uh, implicitly passed arguments to that method. <laughs> so, for example, if you have method that takes a context, and somewhere inside the method calling this method, you have a context variable, named context, mm-hmm. then it, uh, you don't even need to pass it to that method. It will be uh, captured automatically. <laughs> Uh, okay, and since the code is so flexible, since the syntax is so flexible, mm-hmm. the completion times are pretty much, I think they're almost as long as the build times of C-sharp and .NET. Mm. Uh, even though they have an incremental compiler, which is feels to me a bit like MS build, uh, it's still a bit too long for my taste compared, for example, to Golang. In Golang, if you have a large project, completion time would be instant. Simply because they took, like I said, okay, we may not have a powerful syntax, but because our syntax is simple, it will be relatively easy to parse that syntax mm-hmm. and build uh, abstract syntax tree and then compile it down to the code. So we'll focus on compiler speed. And the compilation speeds there are awesome. Now, what, if anything, does that have to do with Akka or... Okay. Uh, I believe ARC was implemented in Scala, oh. and from uh, since uh, it runs on JVM, uh, you can write uh, your ARC code in both uh, Scala and Java. I see. 
Okay, and if we're going to look in some Scala language, okay, that's a good pretty much example of Scala. I see. We're looking at. Uh, you'll send me the link to that. Um, yeah. And there's what is that? Apache Spark. Yeah. Oh yes. Uh, one of the things for the Scala world and our world is that they have Apache Spark, mm -hmm. and Apache Spark is pretty much the current thing for doing uh, big data analytics. Ah. Just like MapReduce was a big thing like a few years ago. I see. Uh, and Spark, I believe, is also implemented in Scala, and that was one of the reasons why uh, Scala was getting more uh, investments and popularity, but I might, might be wrong here. Gotcha. Okay. So Scala might look a lot like C-sharp. Mm -hmm. At least you'll find similar uh, calling conventions, and it will continue looking like C-sharp until you discover some uh, really unexpected uh, behavior or syntax, which is probably some syntactic sugar in Scala world. I see. Now, if someone was boiling it down and they're really trying to push Scala, what are they usually trying to convince you? That, like, it's amazing, it's the best thing for what? No, it runs on JVM. That's it. It's more productive. It, uh, it's not as, a, as verbose as Java. Mm -hmm. gotcha. And it runs on JVM. Essentially, hipsters who are used to this kind of uh, C syntax, who accept the C syntax, uh, they don't have anywhere else to go. Gotcha. Uh, sorry, hipsters that are aiming to work with enterprise or to be acquired by enterprise, or they simply want to have uh, the access to the ecosystem that has the best amount of libraries, have the best amount of uh, support for building distributed systems, or even simply like dealing with low-level stuff. Gotcha. Meaning the, the Java ecosystem, obviously. Yes, Java ecosystem. Yeah. Cool. Although... If you want to deal with a Java system and you don't mind weird syntax, mm -hmm. uh, then there is closure. <laughs> That's also a JVM thing? Yes. Okay. Uh, so essentially closure uh, is a Lisp. And Lisp is a very, very old language. Yes, I've only heard about it in like way back... We in my past life we had like a division doing like artificial intelligence kind of things in Lisp or something, you know. And I, why don't you tell us, you know, basically what does a Lisp-based language mean? Like, what is what are we talking about? Okay, first of all, uh, just like you have heard tales from like almost myths about Lisp, mm. uh, and some of them were from very cool people who were doing like uh, very hardcore stuff. Yes. And I simply didn't understand, like, if people are doing so cool stuff, like artificial intelligence, neural networks, yes. uh, why do they stick with this very weird language that has <laughs> so many parentheses? Yes. I mean, it's like, it <laughs> looks weird. It's very strange. It's, I don't know, what the heck is that? Why do they stick to that? Yes. Uh, and... Uh, actually, a while ago, I read a nice article, and person uh, there, he was CTO of startup. I believe it was helicopter, and they were acquired to do uh, as a platform for doing something with hotels. Uh, and he said, uh, at the beginning of his career, his mentor told him two things. Mm -hmm. First, uh, when you start your software business, first start off as a consultant. Mm -hmm. uh, you will make uh, money for your next business, but you'll also discover problems and you, uh, the other people will pay you to solve their problems. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you'll find an idea for building a product. Right. And the second advice was learn Lisp. <laughs> okay. 
And so Lisp is a language that has very this weird syntax. Mm-hmm. And it's, for example, the language, uh, it's, it's the dialect, actually. Uh, it's uh, Lisp powers Emacs, for example. Okay. Emacs has its own flavor of Emacs Lisp. Okay. And Clojure is essentially a Lisp that runs on JVM. Okay. Uh, for the curious ones, there's also a version of Clojure that runs on CLR that's available for .NET. But I don't believe many people are using it. Now, what what is the uh, sales pitch on a Lisp language like? Why do you? What's it so amazing at? First uh, point, JVM. Oh, sorry, uh, closure, uh, JVM. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, second thing, so Lisps. Oh man, I can't even start explaining to you <laughs> how awesome it is because I just started grasping it. I see. So uh, Lisps. I can't even talk about the Lisps because uh, I don't have a lot of experience with the other versions. I'll uh, say uh, about Clojure. Okay. So Clojure is a functional language mm-hmm. that values immutability uh, at its core. So all the operations are, almost all the operations are immutable. Okay. Uh, so if, for example, to compare in C-sharp, recently with the uh, added immutable.bcl, mm-hmm. it is uh, a library which allows you to have immutable What's the word? Uh, lists, immutable dictionaries, and this kind of stuff. All right. And immutability is good because it uh, reduces the amount of errors in your bu- uh, code. It allows you to write uh, code that is more thread safe. Mm-hmm. And in closure, immutability is at the core of the language. Uh, second, uh, there are no types in closure. You basically have only a few uh, ways to capture a data type. You have a list, you have a vector, which is a different kind of list. Uh, then you have a dictionary, and a dictionary can have like numbers, strings, or other objects. And that's pretty much it. Hmm. So whenever there was a joke that if you want to express something in Java, uh, bang, you already have five classes. <laughs> uh, in Lisp, that will be a simple data structure. So, uh, in essence, you have data structures which are immutable, and you have functions that can ma- manipulate these data structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then comes the nice quality of Lisp. Code is also a data structure. So, each function uh, is, a data str- uh, is a list that has a what's the word, identifier as a first argument, and function, for example, function definition has then the second argument, which is array of arguments, and the the other, uh, the last item of the list is the body. Whoa! So the thing that you're showing me on your screen right now, this looks like something that you wrote, right? Yes. So why don't we? Because I just took a screenshot of that. Why don't we walk through like what the heck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> like. So it has this and this and can be data, blah, blah, blah. Like, all right, let's walk through this thing in detail real quick and see if I can understand what the heck you're talking about. Okay, so uh, that's the first line is a namespace. Okay. Uh, Here I was trying different approaches to solve the FizzBuzz. All right. And FizzBuzz challenge is, uh, in essence, says that uh, print me uh, numbers from 1 to 100 on the screen. Mm -hmm. But for every number that is divisible by 15, I want to see his buzz instead of a number. Okay. For every number that is divisible by five, I want to see buzz. Mm-hmm. For every number that is divisible by three, I want to see this. Gotcha. Okay. And here I was violating the purpose of this challenge, and I was trying to find more compact way to express uh, his buzz challenge enclosure. So I, uh, I sometimes chose 
more complicated ways that just have less letters. Gotcha. Okay, uh, so the second uh, form or function here, it's a definition of FISBUS. Mm -hmm. Basically, I'm defining a FISBUS function, okay. which has, doesn't have any uh, arguments. All right. Uh, and then it essentially performs a select in C-sharp terms in uh, FISBUS, that's a fun uh, map. Uh, it takes uh, the second argument and applies it to numbers from 1 to 100. Wait a second here. So that map keyword is doing what? Uh, it's a select. Okay. Uh, you know, like in C Sharp, mm -hmm. you can uh, take an enumerable oh, yes, and yes. Uh, apply a function to that. Uh, I see, so, I see. So that's the uh, range uh, 1 to uh, up to 101. That's Got the it. You're saying iterate through this enumerable 1 through 101, and when you see these conditions that you defined in the middle of it, do this stuff. Yeah, cool. so uh, this uh, hash is, I believe, it's just uh, fun, something like that. It's a shortcut for expressing a function. I see. Cool. So, and that will be replaced like that. So it's something like this. Gotcha. So uh, hash is a shortcut for expressing a lambda. Mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, when I want... Or the pound okay, symbol. And, or, yeah. yeah. And here, uh, this the count is essentially another function. Okay. Uh, and they can oh, actually, it's a micro, but it's, it looks like a function. Mm, okay. So a condition here says, uh, okay, so if this is equal, then return this. If uh, the second line, is, uh, so if the first line, uh, if division of x by fifteen is equals to zero, mm -hmm. then return this bus. Right. So a condition essentially. It's like a case statement. Yeah, like yeah, it's evaluating. Yeah, like a case statement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and that's it. Gotcha. So, guys, I know you can't see this. Uh, the um, we'll sh we'll have a screenshot of this, but basically, we're walking through uh, the definition of that select like structure enclosure, and mm -hmm. it's pretty. The syntax, once you understand what's going on uh, now <laughs> that Renat explained it, it's actually pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, all method calls always look like this. You have a parenthesis, mm -hmm. and you have a method name, and then you have arguments to that function. Oh, I see. So in your in this case, that zero question mark is a method name that you created, yes. or is that it? okay? No, that's what that's uh, built in. Oh, there's a method built into closure called zero. Gotcha. Yes. Okay, got it. And the question mark means what? Uh, it's basically just convention. Mm -hmm. So uh, closure as itself, it doesn't have complicated syntax. Okay. So, for example, in C sharp, you can have the question mark, which is, I believe, a ternary operator, or like, or inline if statement. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you uh, have both. And here, uh, question mark is just part of the identifier. Oh, that you that you chose to use. Got it. Not, not I chose. That's uh, so zero question mark mm -hmm. is uh, a name of a standard function. Oh, okay. I believe oh, okay. there is a convention. If function returns a boolean, true or false, then its name ends with question mark, which gotcha. actually makes sense. I see. Cool, cool. Okay. <clears throat> okay, and that's pretty much to it. And the second FISBUS is a shorter version. Mm -hmm. Now, when, when you were saying before that in Clojure, the code is also the data, is this what you mean? Like these, like, what is, I mean, because... It seems like this is similar, just with different words, with like select statements and stuff. But what's the powerful thing I'm not getting there, as far as "quote unquote" code is data too, or something? Okay, please uh, correct me. Yeah. Readers, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. But actually, condition and mm -hmm. case, these are macros. Uh huh. 
and macro is a function mm-hmm. that takes the code but takes it as a data and it spits out a different version of code. Oh. So uh, basically, I didn't get to actually write macros in my code. Uh, I feel sort. So I can't talk with them with uh, any level of expertise. Okay. But essentially, macros are functions mm-hmm. which you define. And then when, when the code compiles, it will first compile macro functions. And then if it actually discovers a function which name is macro, it will take arguments to that function, transform them on the fly, and insert the transformed version. So, in other words, if you're writing uh, something like a link, or if you're writing a tiny macro that will uh, ex- take a tiny data argument and blow it into a full neural network implementation, you do that with a macro. I see. And I think that's where um, the lispiness comes in, because uh, the only thing I really did remember from my former coworkers that were doing the stuff in a lisp were, was that I remember they were telling me how some parts of their program were designed to see certain things going on and then it almost like writes its own code to deal with what it finds or something like that. Yes. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And actually, uh, recently, or maybe not so recently, uh, Clojure got an addition inspired by Golang. So Clojure decided to implement channels and routines uh, in Clojure. And they also, I believe, added support for async and await kind of code. Okay. Uh, and how they did that? They didn't have to extend the language. They actually wrote a library, which is a standalone, which had a few macros. Hmm. However, as you write the code that deals with these Go routines and uh, channels, uh, since, it's, it, since it is a macro, when the, your code compiles, it will unwrap itself into a more verbose code mm-hmm. uh, that works like a state machine. So uh, an example of doing that in another language is that imagine if in C-sharp uh, it was possible to implement async await all by itself without touching the compiler. I see. That's what Lisp makes possible. I see. Cool. And also one nice side effect is that although the uh, syntax is ugly, but it's focused around data structures and around data manipulation. Mm-hmm. And functions are also look like the data. And that can be sometimes confusing. However, because of that, they don't have XML files for storing configuration. They don't have like project files for storing the project description. All of that is still Lisp. Hmm. It's the same data structures. Cool. And the second thing, since uh, the, da- uh, the data is code, and the code itself is oriented for data manipulation, uh, if, you have, if you are building a system that mostly manipulates data, like, I don't know, downloads data from the database, performs some uh, changes to that, returns it through the uh, API, saves the result, reads the events, supplies them somehow, mm-hmm. then Lisp is probably a good fit because its pr- main purpose is to make the manipulation of data easy and make it uh, less buggy. Hmm, cool. And I've discovered that all the systems that I was touching recently like in retail, in social networks, mm-hmm. in uh, business intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's mostly data manipulation. Mm-hmm. So I'm currently fail- feeling, well, uh, applying closure in retrospective to, this, uh, to these problems, that closure would have been a good, good fit. Mm-hmm. And it's especially nice since, like, when working with C-Sharp, I 
was very frustrated occasionally when, hey, I want to use Apache Kafka. I want to consume messages from Apache Kafka. Or I want to use LevelDB, which is a very nice uh, embedded key value oriented database. Mm-hmm. Or I always want to use RocksDB, which is improved uh, concurrent, uh, for concurrent access version of LevelDB in C Sharp. So, how do I do that? Oh, damn. Nobody ever bothered to write an adapter or a binding for that in C Sharp. Mm-hmm. In Java, you don't have the language, uh, you don't have the problem. Because since it is uh, the problem on the pro- uh, platform on the enterprise, you don't have a uh, hard time looking for the library or client. Although you might have a hard time actually selecting one out of many. <laughs> gotcha. So, in other words, if I were building uh, a business backend for the system that mostly deals uh, with uh, data transformations, like loading stuff from the database, applying some changes, returning to the client, almost any DDD stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I have encountered was doing cool things like artificial intelligence and I needed access to the most developed ecosystem for running backends uh, on earth then I'd probably choose Clojure and since it's functional and since it's immutable you don't have uh, you don't have to write a lot of code for example you don't have to write classes you don't have to actually deal with the whole problem of object oriented uh, programming approach so the code, as uh, closure enthusiasts claim, uh, becomes more simple. And simple is good because it can it, it lets you focus on actually solving the problems and not writing the code. Cool. So, Kerry, if you're building, uh, <laughs> if you're deciding to build a system mm-hmm. and you want to have some backend and you don't care uh, which language uh, it is implemented, but <laughs> you want to run it anywhere, on, then I can do that in closure for you. <laughs> Interesting. I'll have to take some notes on that one. It looks it looks pretty interesting, though. I do like the At list. At least it's my uh, current favorite language of the week. Yes, I look forward to seeing what will be the amazing language of uh, next... Uh, I'll give it six months. But okay. uh, but we'll see, you know. It, I, I do like the lispiness of it, actually. It is kind of cool. When I was first seeing some of the tweets that you put out, and, uh, and I those parentheses everywhere... For some reason, that looked harder to read than what you're showing me right now, but probably because you walked through the sample and now I can actually see what's going on. So it's cool. Yeah. Basically, it's hard to see for the parentheses. They mm. look like hell. Yeah. But once you see through them and once you start uh, seeing what's possible in closure, actually not possible, what's easily doable with closure that is uh, hard in other languages, it becomes like, oh my god, that's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like try it, and you'll 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 get the uh, oh my god moment from you that you're talking yeah. about. And to be fair, each language has its own merits. So C sharp is a very good multi paradigm uh, language if you're building, for example, for a Windows ecosystem, mm-hmm. or you want to hire talent. And C sharp is actually extremely popular. Uh, I believe if if you check uh, job trends, C sharp uh, compares to Java these days. True, because Microsoft has uh, been making so many good marketing moves. They're open sourcing uh, .NET. They're pushing this uh, .NET Core thing, which will allow them to run cross platform in a couple of, in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're helping with Mono. Uh, they're pushing this SP.NET thing. So there is a lot of momentum in this area. For sure. 
Now, the other one that we skipped over was the your you did some you dabbled in JavaScript and I know React and maybe some Node stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, so yes, and I'm still working in uh, JavaScript a lot. Mm-hmm. So it is a very nice uh, prototyping language. Similar to Clojure, it doesn't have classes, although there are uh, out of the box, at least in ES5. Right. Uh, sorry. Uh, and although there were types to, uh, there were efforts to add type safety to that, like TypeScript, CoffeeScript, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has probably the runtime that is the most well deployed around the world. Because if you have phone, if you have browser, you probably have a JavaScript runtime. Yeah. Uh, there is there was even effort to make JavaScript uh, run on servers. And some claim that it was more or less successful. Uh, it's first it was called Node.js, then they forked it was IO.js, and then they're coming back together. It's Node.js again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a mess. But basically, that reflects the mess, and the, in a hipster way, uh, the entire JavaScript ecosystem is. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never, I, I was never really a huge fan. Um, although I'd have to say that in the last, I don't know, year or so, I'd say the. With ES6 and some of the new frameworks, and they've been getting their act together over time. Now there's still, you know, there's still infinite choice and in JavaScript library of the week kind of problems, but there definitely are clearer, stronger, I guess, frameworks and patterns that you can deal with, like you know, Angular 2 and Aurelia and React and 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 and. Right? There's so many choices, but. There really are some some good ways to build JavaScript applications these days, but I, I really haven't even done any of it yet because I've always avoided it because I'm like, ah, I don't want to learn that yet. But it's pretty much inevitable. Like it, I would say, you if as a modern programmer, it's probably one of the things you need to be familiar with and be somewhat decent at, at least JSON and <laughs> some basic uh, web front ends and React or something. So. And do you know what's uh, one other way to build uh, JavaScript applications? What's that? Uh, uh, for example, uh, recently they added the Immutable JS. I think Facebook open sourced it. Okay. Uh, immutable JS essentially provides you with immutable uh, persistent, da- persistent data structures like Lisps, uh, dictionaries, which uh, allow you to do the, almost the same thing like Clojure does. Hmm. And <laughs> actually, Clojure has Clojure script. Which is the same dialect, same code that runs on JavaScript platform. <laughs> and actually, in one of his talks, uh, Rich Hickey was uh, sharing an interesting experience. Uh, back in the times when React was just showing up, uh, there was a micro benchmark of uh, how fast is the application built with React and Angular and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was micro benchmarking uh, the to do application, uh, the to do MVC, I believe, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one implementation was uh, in Pure React, and the other was in OM. I believe that's uh, what was Clojure over React called. Hmm, okay. Clojure script or the React. And this version was twice as fast as the original React, even though it was wrapping React. <laughs> and uh, this was caused actually by the fact that Clojure implements uh, immutable data structures, and like things like comparing data there is pretty fast. And afterwards, uh, folks from React uh, thanked Chiki, and they actually started uh, adding immutability and this kind of approach to React itself. Huh. So, in other words, if you learn Lisp, you have more applications, uh, and you can work on more platforms than you 
uh, initially think. And yeah. there's also closure on CLR, although I don't think many people use it, but it's still there. Now, I'm just throwing it out there, Renat. I'm thinking that in 2016, at least, right now, at the beginning of 2016, I'm sensing a pattern here of what your favorite uh, language paradigm is right now, and that's uh, Lisp and Clojure and Lisp and Lisp and more Lispy, closure stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Clojure is a nice and very practical implementation because it runs on JVM, so it's very easy to sell that. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you write a program, a program with Clojure and use uh, Lanenkin, for the build manager. So you can compile your closure into Uberjar and basically it's a single jar file you, you ship to any platform where there is a Java installed, uh, one command line, and you're running. Cool. So uh, just to wrap up the JavaScript topic, so what did you mainly just use it to build front ends or did you do stuff in Node servers as well? Or what, what was your kind of summary experience with that? And- <gasps> yes, uh, I tried both. Mm-hmm. And no uh, JavaScript uh, on the server, as in Node.js and IOJS, it's fun, but it's not as good uh, for the things I was trying to do. Okay. So if you're trying to build a front-end server, uh, it's pretty good. If you're trying to maintain high-level connections, uh, high-level of connections, and okay with either going very deep or okay with restarting your servers once in a while, the Node.js is pretty good. Mm-hmm. But for me, it didn't feel like a good fit. Maybe I'm not like in this kind of mindset. Right, gotcha. So uh, I'd keep JavaScript for uh, simply front-ends. Mm-hmm. And actually for the front-ends, these days I f- favor, uh, but it's personal choice, code, like when you have your website logic, mm-hmm. and it actually compiles to static files, which are deployed anywhere, and they uh, then they're loaded in your browser, and in your entire application runs in your browser. And when, when it needs data, when it needs authentication, authorization, this kind of stuff, it talks to the backend server. Mm-hmm. Now, this approach has one, uh, two good merits. First, it's very easy to scale and deploy. You simply copy that to any, any server capable of throwing static files. Or Amazon S3 with cloud, uh, Cloudflare, not Cloudflare, CloudFront CDN. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very easy to maintain multiple versions of your front end. Simply copy them to the folders side by side on your web server. Mm-hmm. Then it simply just works, and well, it is a good separation of concerns. So, are you is React in there somewhere, or what are you doing? Yes, to make, yeah, yes. Okay. yeah, got it. Okay, cool. And actually, uh, currently, for example, SQL, uh, we're using like Node.js process npm uh, to bundle. Uh, the original uh, templates together into a single uh, single page app that is then deployed. I see. Cool. And I think we should also mention on the JavaScript topic that the other interesting thing that's been happening in the last year or so that's more prevalent is um, the whole uh, Electron JS container from uh, GitHub that mm-hmm. uh, VS Code is is using, yes. and it's making desktop application development and deployment much less of a pain. So there's some interesting, cool things you can do there, um, obviously with the Atom Editor and VS Code and some others, I'm sure. It did interest me a little bit there. Like that was one of the things I was actually considering looking at because, um, you know, just 
the former desktop development I did was like WinForms and stuff like in WPF and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, the deployment story on that wasn't that fun. But this uh, Atom and Electron kind of stuff uh, seems pretty pretty easy. So, And you can, yes. you know, if you get good at that, you can theoretically do Cordova kind of stuff or Ionic or whatever, mobile mm-hmm. stuff. So, mm-hmm. uh, I, I mean, I think we're not saying anything earth-shattering here. Everyone pretty much knows. Like, JavaScript is everywhere. There's libraries for everything you could ever want to do. It may not be the best possible thing for every possible problem, but you can probably figure out a way to do almost everything in JavaScript at some point because I'm seeing video game emulators and full-on Apple IIe emulators. Like, I'm, I'm more every day I'm more impressed by uh, what people are able to pull off in JavaScript. So more power to it, I guess. Yes, yeah. it's uh, probably the JavaScript is an essence of uh, the entire World Wide Web, because like uh, www is such a mess. It's uh, like nobody follows the standards, nobody follows the pure conventions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just follow a few basic rules. And internet, the biggest distributed system in the world, just works. Yes, it's a mess, but it works. <laughs> and JavaScript is. In essence, the language behind the www. Yes. And it's, it's a mess. Like, oh, my God, you should have seen the NPM packages. There are packages that uh, add a few lines of code and bring in, like, a ton of other packages. So it's like if you think Nugget Hell on C Sharp where <laughs> you uh, load one dependency and instantly you get 100 megabytes mm-hmm. uh, and lots of files is bad, no, you should have seen NPM. Yeah, and the quality <laughs> of there is horrible. I didn't get too much into that, but I, when I was walking through a uh, course on JavaScript or Node or whatever I was doing, I don't remember, but I was using NPM and I didn't really notice it on the background, but I happened to store it on my Dropbox and I saw my other computer like syncing the Dropbox folder that was the NPM module and it was like, just synced 4,650 files. I'm like, what? I just did Hello World or something. So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, but, you know. So it's very hackish and it's very hipster at what it's doing. Mm-hmm. But for hacking and prototyping and doing with the UI, it's pretty good. Cool. Cool. So, any other languages that you explored the last couple of years? I think that's pretty much it. And it sounds like right now, your favorite might be closure. Uh, actually, that would depend on the problem to solve. Okay. It's actually such a peace of mind that um, breaking away from uh, like one or two languages mm-hmm. and from breaking away uh, from the need to defend them against all the other languages mm-hmm. and simply covering multiple languages like to see, okay, what they're applicable of for, uh, what they're capable of, how you solve problems in them. And basically, each my, my, uh, language is a mindset both a computer language or a human-spoken language like French, Spanish, etc. And mastering more languages is always good because it expands your mind and it helps you to solve problems in your maybe native language better, Mm -hmm. uh, given what you know. For example, after learning Erlang and how Erlang encapsulates interfaces around uh, actors, I think it became easier for me to reason about building uh, concurrent or remote systems in C-sharp or any other language. Because Erlang is so good at that. They nailed the concepts there. Yeah, you're able to see some of the higher level patterns that you could actually implement in those other languages. Exactly, exactly. So you have like less choices because you know already what you like and you know already what works for thousands of people on this specific niche. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, one idea that I'd love 
the listeners of this episode to carry out from the episode, mm-hmm. aside from my uh, constant babbling that, wow, closure is awesome. Lisp, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Lisp, yeah. Is that, like, different languages have different merits and they have different applicabilities. They were tested for different things. Yeah. Uh, they were developed for different things. They are, they are capable of different things. And there are languages that are very good at small areas, or there are languages that are multipurpose and they are generally good at everything, but they are less efficient than specific languages. Right. And more languages you know, uh, easier it will be for you to choose the right tool for the task. Easier it will be for you to balance multiple constraints, like availability of the uh, libraries, availability, uh, diversity of the ecosystem, uh, need to hire developers versus where this ecosystem is going, etc., etc. For sure. Pretty Just much. learn more languages. It will make you a better developer. Yeah, for sure. I think in, in this world, that's, that's almost like a, almost a mandatory requirement for like a, a professional developer these days. Like you can get by, but if you want to, really feel like you're you're really going for it in the software development land i think that uh you got to dip your toe in the water somewhere else and see see how the other half lives once in a while or uh i don't know it just seems like the whole world's going that way like even microsoft itself and the proprietary windows world that many of us came from even they realize how the world is now and they've changed their tune and it's working out pretty good for them so i would imagine that if your mindset is I have one language, I use one operating system, and I have one type of PC, and I want to solve every problem with those one set of tools. Um, you know, the world's not really built that way anymore. Um, so you might want to open your eyes and check out some other stuff. Now, that being said, I'll probably be very hypocritical because I will try to do that from a learning perspective. But when I'm trying to get something done, I'm probably going to fall back to my old habits and say, all right, cool. Closure looks pretty interesting, but I'm stuck now and Renat sleeping, so screw it. Stack Overflow, C Sharp. Here we go. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, who knows? But I'll, I do enjoy firing up a Pluralsight course or whatever and, and checking out, uh, you know, functional C Sharp. Or I'm going to actually look for one on Closure now because I'm curious just to listen through it first and see if it makes more sense to me. Just because I am a little tempted by it, the powerful uh, data manipulation stuff you mentioned. So. We'll see how that goes. That's why I'm interested to, uh, like, in trying projects that are, in essence, data manipulation. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, like, when, if you're trying a Hello World or a FizzBuzz, then the languages could be similar or like, it would be hard to compare them. Mm-hmm. So in order to truly see the language, you need to try it on a larger project to see how it behaves when the complexity grows, to see how it behaves uh, as you add more people to the team. And for example... One of the selling points of closure, as told by people like with lots of experience, uh, or just in general Lisp, is that when imperative logic, imperative code similar to C sharp or C or uh, Java, uh, as a project grows, it becomes fragile. It becomes hard to refactor. Mm-hmm. And they claim that functional languages uh, like F sharp or Lisps, they make it easier for you to grow complicated projects. We so I guess we'll see. Uh, we'll try and see. Yeah, we'll, we'll try and see. Now, guys, I obviously this episode ran longer than our 
typical average, but uh, it was. If it's boring to you, it was interesting to me. So we kept recording, and I wanted to hear about this stuff. So give us your feedback. I actually did turn on. I think it's called Discuss or D I S Q U S. I don't even know, but whatever that uh, commenting engine on the web is that a lot of sites have. That was uh, one of the ones that our ho- new hosting provider supported, so it was easy for me to add that. So if you do have any questions or comments on any of the episodes, you can go to our site at beingtheworst.com now and leave us feedback or questions there. And we are at being the worst on Twitter. We are at KC Street and at Abdulin. Anything else we got to say on this, Renat? Pretty much it. Learn some languages. Try it out. Closure rules. Expand your horizons. Yeah. Yeah. Tattoo the word closure on your uh, your baby uh, tonight, and uh, hope that you like it forever and ever. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, That's a good one. not that crazy. All right. Cool. All right, guys, we'll uh, we'll uh, talk to you next time, and uh, maybe next episode, depending upon uh, where things go with my side projects, we'll be getting back to which problem domain I want to work with, or maybe uh, talking about what did I do uh, messing around with closure or some other language we not mentioned and sidetracked me. So I didn't actually achieve any business value, but man, did I have some fun playing with some languages. I'm a little worried that's where we're going to end up, buddy, but let's see what happens, right? <laughs> Yep, absolutely. All right, guys. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.